Well, hey guys, glad to have you back for another episode of the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. I'm Jonathan, your creative producer over at Stay Forth, and we've got something pretty cool in store for you today. It's going to be a little bit different, but the more I think about it, it's actually kind of the same. Before we get into that, I want to remind you to join us January 25th through the 29th, that's next week, for our five-day jumpstart all to help you get more productive and more focused in the year ahead. Last year was a dumpster fire, and we want to help you gain momentum and regain control of your schedule. So you can get all the details by clicking the link in the show notes below, or you can head over to focus.rightsideupleader.com and register for free. Well, we're going to do something a bit different today than our normal format, but it's still kind of the same. We've got Mark Batterson hanging out on the podcast today. Now, Mark's a really cool guy. He, he does it all. He's a 17-time New York Times bestselling author. He's a pastor. He's a speaker. He owns and operates a coffee shop. He, he does a bunch of amazing things. And today he's here to talk to us about his new book, Win the Day, Seven Daily Habits to Help You Stress Less and Accomplish More. Now, I don't know about you, but after last year, I think we're all looking to get more done this year and to reduce the level of stress that we carry. So sit back, have a cup of coffee, really sit with this episode, and enjoy today's talk with Mark Batterson on how to stress less and accomplish more. On September 7th, 1892, a boxer named Gentleman Jim Corbett did what no one had done before. He got into the ring with arguably the greatest boxer of all time. John L. Sullivan was the last uh, heavyweight champion of bare knuckle boxing and the first heavyweight champion of glove boxing in 50 fights. He was undefeated. The only fight Sullivan ever lost was this one. Gentleman Jim Corbett knocked him out in the 21st round, became the heavyweight champion of the world, and you gotta love this, gave the prize money to his church. Can I get an amen? I share that to share this. Corbett had a life motto, fight one more round. That life motto has become a leadership maxim for me. Corbett said, when your arms are so tired that you can hardly lift your hands to come on guard, fight one more round. When your nose is bleeding and your eyes are black and you are so tired that you wish your opponent would crack you one on the jaw and put you to sleep, fight one more round. And this is as true of leadership as it is of boxing. Corbett said, the man who fights one more round is never whipped. Anybody feel like you've taken a few left hooks, a few right jabs uh, to the jaw, maybe a few sucker punches, even below the belt? Leadership takes a toll all the time. There is wear and tear, there are bumps and bruises, but it has been a year. I have no idea how we'll look back on 2020, but it has felt like a heavyweight fight. Am I in the right room? In his first letter to the Corinthians, the apostle Paul does a little bare knuckle boxing. Chapter nine, verse 26, he says, I do not fight as a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body. The New Living Translation says, I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. 
In his second letter to Timothy, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. And in his letter to the Ephesians, uh, he gives this exhortation, having done all to stand, stand. It's a challenge for us today. We find ourselves in the middle of a pandemic and not just this COVID-19 crisis, we've got racial tension, political polarization. One third of Americans struggling with depression or anxiety disorders. Uh, we have got 71% of Americans saying that they're angry. 66% of Americans saying that they're fearful. And I'll add one more statistic. I think this was Church Pulse Weekly that said, 18% of pastors feel qualified to lead right now. And I'm wondering who those 18% are. This has been the hardest year of leadership for me, and I'm sure I'm not alone. All of us feel like we're out of our depth, feel like we are past our pay grade. I felt like throwing in the towel a time or two. It's been emotionally exhausting. It has been spiritually taxing, but I want you to hear what I'm about to say. You are here for such a time as this. You are here for such a place as this. This is our moment, as hard as it is, when we kneel down and then we stand up. When we stay calm and carry on. This is our moment to confront the brutal facts, but to do it with unwavering faith. His kingdom's gonna come. His will is going to be done. This is when leaders lead. And so I'm challenging you today, no matter who you are, no matter where you're at, would you fight one more round? The greatest challenge always presents the most important lesson. And we've gotta learn those lessons so that God can <clears throat> graduate us to the next level of leadership. And so uh, with our time together, let me share uh, three thoughts, three things that can help us get healthy and stay healthy as leaders. Uh, number one, healthy leaders stay humble and stay hungry. I have a friend who works at the White House, worked at the White House um, a few years ago, a few doors down from the Oval Office, and his responsibility was crisis management. Uh, there was one crisis where he spent 89 nights in a row in his office. And so this is someone who has been at the middle of some of the most significant crises that we've experienced as a country. And he shared with me uh, a leadership lesson that I wanna share with you. He said, I reserve the right to get smarter. That is so good, so true, and so important right now. We're all gonna make mistakes. And I know it's really tough in a cancel culture because one wrong word, one wrong step, uh, one strike, and you're out. But here's the deal. Uh, none of us are perfect. All of us are going to make mistakes. The question is this, do you have the courage to admit when you're wrong? And then do you learn from those mistakes? Failure is poorly managed success. And success 
It's well-managed failure. 2 Corinthians 8, 2 is one of my most quoted verses. It says, he who thinks he knows does not yet know as he ought to know. In other words, the more you know, the more you know how much you don't know. Translation, stay humble. I say this to our church all the time. As soon as I am omniscient, I will let you know, but I would not hold your breath. I reserve the right to get smarter. And here's the good news. If you stay humble and stay hungry, there's nothing that God cannot do in you or through you. Now, here's a scary thought. You can be doing the will of God and God can oppose it. I know that sounds heretical, but scripture says that God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. And so uh, God will not violate that character. If you do the right thing for the wrong reasons, it doesn't even count in the kingdom of God. So what we need to do as leaders is operate in a spirit of humility. I've led every kind of person over the years, as I'm sure many of you have, uh, every number on the Enneagram, every letter on the Myers-Briggs. You know, I- I've led those people that you would clone if you could, and-, and I've led those people who are EGR, extra grace required. But I, I wanna tell you, the hardest person I have ever led, you know the answer, don't you? It- it's the person that is looking back at you When you look in the mirror, the hardest person to lead is me, myself, and I. I think many people view the great commandment as two-dimensional. Love God, uh, heart, soul, mind, and strength, this vertical dimensional. uh, Or or love your neighbor, uh, this horizontal dimension. But there is an internal dimension. We read right over it. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. Listen, if you don't love yourself, if you don't lead yourself, then you're gonna project your issues on the people that you lead. Hurt people, hurt people. Heal people, heal people. And so if you have open wounds or unresolved issues, they become part of the ecosystem. It doesn't matter whether it's a small group or a staff or a congregation, Uh, Individual insecurities become organizational dysfunctions, which creates a toxic culture. And I think uh, King Saul is exhibit A. He kept a jealous eye on David, and uh, it not only destroyed him, it destroyed his administration. A couple of quick hitters. Um, One, don't let an arrow of criticism pierce your heart unless it first passes through the filter of Scripture. I heard Erwin McManus say that many years ago, and I took it to heart. Um, If you live off of compliments, you will die by criticism. And while we're on the subject, I I buy into what Michelangelo said, criticize by creating. Uh, You can please all the people some of the time. You can please some of the people all the time, but you cannot please all the people all the time. Abraham Lincoln I don't care if your name is Moses and you're coming down Mount Sinai with two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. Guess what? 16%, diffusion of innovation, 16% are still going to resist that vision. Now, don't get discouraged by that. 
It's called the bell curve, okay? Sometimes we as leaders get so discouraged by that 16% that are laggards or resistors. But you know what? I found that they serve a very valuable function. They help me refine the vision that God has given me so that I can cast that vision even more effectively. At the end of the day, it comes down to this. If you do what you do for extrinsic reasons, uh, it's a losing battle. You've got to live for the applause of nail-scarred hands and uh, anything else is short-lived and short-changed. Now, I think right now, given our cultural situation, our posture is so critical. I made a decision about four months ago that I would do my very best to be unoffendable. Now, it's easier said than done, but, but I've learned that when you take offense, you start to play defense and all of these defense mechanisms start popping up and, uh, and you, you start playing not to lose and that's not what God has called us to. And so I felt like the Lord said, Mark, put your pride and put your prejudice on the altar. This is a moment to stay humble and to stay hungry. And I'll add one more thing, maybe flip that coin. You've got to try to be unoffendable, but here's the deal. You're going to offend somebody. At the end of the day, you're probably going to offend either God or people. And so here's my advice. Thou shalt offend Pharisees. I mean, it seems to me like that, that Jesus did that with great intentionality and regularity. Um, you know, he could have healed on any day of the week, but the Sabbath, just far more fun, right? Why don't we heal someone, kill two birds with one stone, and we'll just confront the legalism and religi religiosity of the Pharisees at the same time. Now, let me talk about what it means to stay hungry. When I was 25, started uh, pastoring and planting this thing called National Community Church. Uh, you know, not a lot of life experiences. Around that time that I read this fascinating statistic that every author puts about two years of life experience into a book. And so I did the math. I figured if I read 250 books, I would gain 500 years of life experience. So I started reading voraciously. Now, part of it is that I felt called to write, but writing is not a natural gifting. In fact, when I was in grad school, I took a graduate assessment, uh, aptitude assessment, and, and it showed a low aptitude for writing. In other words, whatever you do, don't write books. It's not a natural gifting. Uh, I had to read 3,000 books before I wrote one, and I reverse engineered them. But the idea is, is this. Uh, I figured, uh, read 250 books, gain 500 years of life experience, and I'll only be a year older. Leaders are readers. I think our mental health, our spiritual health, it's so important that we have the right diet feeding our soul. Now, obviously begins with that daily Bible reading plan, uh, love you version. Thanks to Life Church, uh, Craig Groeschel, Bobby Grunewald. Man, what a gift to the kingdom. Every morning, I'm, I'm up and at it, kind of check that box and make sure that I have that diet of scripture. You don't just read the Bible, Bible reads you. But then I think everyology is a branch of theology. And so critical that we are 
consuming uh, those kinds of resources. Now, I've had people say, Mark, 250 books, no way. Um, I was pastoring 19 people at the time, okay? So I had a little bit of time on my hands and and I didn't have a smartphone. Uh, We spend, average person, 142 minutes on social media. That's two hours and 22 minutes. Uh, Imagine what you could do with that amount of time times 365 days. Um, But I'll keep it simple. Here's a little challenge. We'll keep it practical. Put a book in your bathroom. And if you do, uh, you will be able to read a book a month. And some of you have more potential than that. Stay humble, stay hungry. Now, number two, I think healthy leaders stay grounded. I've never met anybody who didn't need counseling. Hold that thought. A few years ago, we bought a city block about a mile from the United States Capitol, cost $29 million, didn't have a category for the price tag or for a city block. Um, Listen, here's what I've learned. Construction uh, will take time off of your life. Plus, we did a capital campaign at the same time. Uh, We needed nearly $50 million to pull this off. And I remember someone told me around that time that about 65% of pastors quit after a building project. And that made no sense to me. Like, no, now you've got the building built. Like, this this is great. Oh, I totally get it now because it it takes a toll uh, on you physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And there was a moment One of those moments where you feel like you might buckle under the weight, Um, capital campaign, construction project, and I just felt like it was so heavy and uh, was so overwhelmed, concerned about my physical health, my mental health. And it was right around that time that I read something Charles Spurgeon said. Now, he he was... uh, young pastor, I think started pastoring uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle, maybe at 19 years old, something like that. Uh, But there was this moment after they built that church building that uh, he shared this. He said, before any great achievement, some measure of depression is very usual. Uh, Such was my experience when I first became a pastor in London. My success appalled me, and the thought of the career which seemed to open up so far from elating me cast me into the lowest depth. This depression comes over me, listen to this, whenever the Lord is preparing a larger blessing for my ministry. It was just a couple of years ago, I was at a gathering, maybe 50 pastors in the uh, D.C. area. Uh, We're friends, uh, different denominations, different ethnicities, uh, different backgrounds, but we get together and uh, love each other, encourage each other. And one of those pastors was brave enough to share about a little bout that he was having with depression. And when he finished sharing that testimony, I just felt like I should ask the question, hey, how many of you are wrestling with depression right now? And about half of the hands went up. And then then I felt like I'm going to push that envelope. How, How many of you have wrestled with depression at some point in the last year? If I'm not mistaken, every hand, mine included, went up. Leadership 
is hard. Um, and uh, how do we stay grounded when we're experiencing the challenges around us and within us? Stick with me. Uh, we used to have a two-star general who attended our church, played uh, electric guitar in one of our bands at one of our campuses. And uh, he shared with our staff one day, and, and he complimented us, and he said, you guys are so good at sharing wins. We begin every meeting by sharing wins. It kind of creates this positivity, which you need when, when you're doing something as challenging as ministry. And so uh, he complimented us. And then he said, but you're not as good at sharing the struggle. And it was at that moment that I, I felt like, yeah, we have to do a better job at letting our church into the struggles. You, you can't just share the testimony ex post facto after it happens. I think sometimes you've got to let people into the pain, let people into the struggle. And, and I would say that that is more important for pastors than anybody else. When I get into the pulpit, I feel like one of my chief responsibilities is to humanize myself and to remind people that, you know, I put my pants on one leg at a time and there is no vaccine against anxiety or depression for leaders. And uh, listen, I get discouraged. I get frustrated. Um, I have to check my spirit and I have to check my ego at the door. And that's the tip of the iceberg. And so we've got to share uh, the struggle and allow people into those moments. Because here's what I've learned. Everybody loves a great success story. You know, it's inspiring, it's encouraging, but it's also a little depressing because most of us aren't experiencing that. And so give me a good failure story every once in a while to remind me that I am not all alone. I think one key for leaders is uh, what I would call peripheral vision. We think of vision as seeing into the distant future. But, but I also think that there's another kind of vision um, our vertical range of vision is 130 degrees. Our horizontal range is 220 degrees. I think peripheral vision is seeing at the very edges. It's, it's noticing what other people ignore. Uh, Warren Bennis calls it first, being a first-class noticer. He says, being a first-class noticer allows you to recognize talent, identify opportunities, and avoid pitfalls. Leaders who succeed again and again are geniuses at grasping context. This is one of those characteristics, like taste, that is difficult to break down into its component parts, but the ability to weigh a welter of factors, some as subtle as very, how very different groups will interpret a gesture is one of the hallmarks of true leadership. I love this moment where a woman with the issue of blood kind of fights her way through a crowd. You remember this? Touches the hem of Jesus' garment. And, and Jesus says, who touched me? And the disciples are, you know, a little bit incredulous. Like, I mean, there's hundreds of people. Like, what do you mean? Hundreds of people have touched you. Um, they do a little bit of contact tracing, right? And uh, they find this woman. Why? Because Jesus said that power has gone out 
from me. He's so dialed in that he recognizes that somehow a miracle has happened. We have got to be dialed in right now to what God is saying and doing. Now, if you're able to do it, I might recommend you doing what I did just a few weeks ago. Did a silent retreat. By, by the way, also did a reading vacation this year. I uh, got the idea from Bill Gates. A great way to kind of get out of the regular workflow and just read, just consume. And, uh, and then I coupled it with a silent retreat because I want to make sure that the still small voice of the Holy Spirit is the loudest voice in my life. And he, here's what I sense. This is a Hebrews 12, 27 moment. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken so that the unshakable things remain. I think God is shaking false securities and false identities. God is shaking false narratives, false idols, false ideologies. And I'm not saying that God is causing some of the things that are happening within culture or this COVID crisis. I think we do a lot of causation without correlation uh, theologically. And so I want us to be careful there. But here's what I sense. I think God is raising up a remnant right now. I think God is decentralizing his church. Once again, it's about the priesthood of believers. It's about the company of prophets. I think God is shifting us from a weekly mindset to daily church. It's just so, it's just too easy to go to church, check a box, and then check out Monday to Friday. Listen, the only ceiling on your intimacy with God and impact on the world is daily spiritual disciplines. And so, Here's the interesting thing to me. Uh, I'm all out of rhythm right now. We, we probably won't gather on the weekend when everything is said and done for at least nine months uh, because in D.C., we're kind of stuck uh, in a phase two that we can't mass gather. Um, but you know what? I look at some of what the Lord has done and if you had told me, I, I would have said that revival broke out. Listen, our DC Dream Center, we served 50,000 meals. We are on the front line caring for needs in our city. Our people above and beyond our regular budget have given uh, more than $450,000 to a relief fund where we are blessing hundreds of individuals and families and dozens of churches. Um, weekday mornings, we do this thing called Upper Zoom. We started it on Pentecost. Why not? They had an upper room. We have Upper Zoom. Hundreds of people gather at 7.14 a.m. Eastern time to pray uh, and believe that we're gonna see his kingdom come. Listen, we're seeing God move in some ways um, that we haven't seen before. And then we just launched something called NCC Daily, where we're believing for Acts 2.47. God added to the church daily, but you don't get 47 without 46. There's gotta be a daily rhythm. And I think it starts with us as leaders. And then it's something we practice at a church. I'll just share one last thing because the Lord impressed it upon me so strongly. Um, I believe in the power of prayer, written a couple of books about it, The Circle Maker, Draw the Circle. Um, listen, prayer is the difference between the best we can do and the best God can do. But I, I feel like the Lord saying, you need to go to another level. In fact, I feel like the Lord said, if you will turn this church into a house of prayer, 
I will turn it into a house of healing, a house of miracles, a house of reconciliation for all people. When the prayer meeting becomes the most important meeting, revival is around the corner. So how do we stay grounded? I think you need a sense of perspective, and I think you need a sense of humor uh, during World War II, I think the low point was probably December uh, 1944. Uh, American troops low on supplies, even lower on morale. It's freezing cold. And they're surrounded by the enemy at Bastogne, Belgium. The, the German commander demanded their immediate surrender. That's when General McAuliffe called together the 101st Airborne Division and said, men, we are surrounded by the enemy. We have the greatest opportunity ever presented in army. We can attack in any direction. Okay, doesn't it feel like that right now? Listen, issues, problems, tensions all around us. Come on, let's rise up and be the church and be the leaders that God has called us to be. How? Well, we love our enemies. I think that's what Jesus said. We pray for those who persecute us. We bless those who curse us. And when we do, heaven invades earth when we care for the widow, the poor, the orphan, when we exercise faith, hope, and love, when we act justly and walk humbly and love mercy, heaven invades earth earth and God's shalom makes an advance. And so it may feel like we're surrender, uh, surrounded right now. Listen, fight another round. Believe that God is going to advance his kingdom through your leadership. All right, finally, number three, healthy leaders stay the course. Wrote a book uh, that releases in December. I uh, may have noticed the title behind me, Win the Day. And it's Pretty simple, yesterday is history, tomorrow is mystery. We've gotta win the day. I don't care what problem you're trying to solve, what goal you're going after. after. You have to win the day, day after day after day. And so we overestimate what we can do in a day or a week or a month or a year, but we underestimate what God can do in 10 or 20 or 70. And so the city block that we're building out Listen, I'll be honest, I didn't have a category for the price tag, didn't have a category uh, for a 100,000 square foot building with another acre and a half right on top of us that we can build on. But here's what I've learned. God's vision for your life is bigger than yours. And we think right here, right now, God is thinking nations and generations. What God does for us is never just for us. It's always for the third and fourth generation. Listen, Jeremiah is 29 is so critical if you wanna have a theology of the city. Jeremiah is writing to the exiles in Babylon. What does he say? He says, plant gardens and build houses. Why? Because you're gonna be here for a while. Don't rent the city own it. Listen, we're not just trying to build a church. We are trying to bless a city. Here's the thing. We have a hard time believing God for cities. And God says, ask of me and I will give you the nations. We need to dream bigger, but that means we need to think longer. And so Jeremiah says, when that city prospers, you will prosper with it. And so seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Well, let me close with this. A few years ago, my wife, Laura, was diagnosed with 
cancer. If you've ever gotten a diagnosis like that, maybe a loved one who has, it's scary. Thousand questions fire across your synapses. What what stage is it? Uh, What's the prognosis? How are we gonna treat it? Now, fortunately, we caught it early. Laura is doing great. In fact, I think she's healthier than she's ever been. Not long after that diagnosis, Laura was reading a piece of poetry and it posed a question. I don't know, this question really shifted our mindset and I would even say changed the trajectory of our lives. The question was this, what have you come to teach me? That's a hard question to ask of cancer. That's a hard question to ask of crisis. What have you come to teach me? Well, it began a learning process, a healing process for us. If you want God to do the super, you have to do the natural. And so we started participating in our own healing. You know, Charles Spurgeon said it this way, you have to kiss the wave that throws you against the rock of ages. It's actually the second of seven habits that I write about and win today. Kiss the wave. Now, I know that sounds counterintuitive, like, and I'm not suggesting that we, that we invite these issues or challenges. Listen, it will find you soon enough, but you have to ask the question, what have you come to teach me? And so Laura began a process of changing her diet, of practicing meditation in the word, of eliminating toxins from our environment. And we became incredibly intentional about increasing our laughter quotient, started frequenting comedy clubs a little bit more uh, with regularity. Now, I'm not sure where your wound is, what your hurt is, but I believe that healing starts, health starts with this question, what have you come to teach me. May we learn the lessons. May we cultivate the character and may God get the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.